1: Deuce McAllister, a uh, Saints legend with us just uh, about 20 minutes ago. And uh, that was in response to me thanking him for his service in Madden all those years ago. And I'd actually never heard that. And it's funny because, it, like, listening back to it, it, I feel so removed from this. But, like, this happened with Ricky Williams was one of these guys. I, I want to say, in that same class, Ladanian Tomlinson was pissed that the Browns didn't draft him. The first, like, six or seven years the browns were back where they kind of teetered between bad football and like mediocrity there was still those that age of guys that came out from like the 99 draft to probably around 05, 06. they actually remembered the browns being good in the 80s and they were like and that was like the era that was like they grew up with that football and or like where they kind of like fell in love with football it's so funny because I just if you ask draft prospects now, I don't think anybody knows about the 1980s Cleveland Browns, let alone knows like the Jim Brown era Cleveland Browns. And and I, and it is like listen, if we go too far down this rabbit hole, it's Christmas season, it's cold and and, and dark outside. Let's not go ahead and send ourselves to uh, to 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 fits of depression here. But it's just so weird because. I don't know if anybody but I just I just remember like every year. Like I remember when uh I can't remember if it was one of the offensive linemen they signed the that first offseason where they sent like Woolball and Orlando Brown, they signed Lomas Brown and they we want to get back to to be in the great Cleveland Browns. Barry Sanders thought about coming out of retirement to sign with the Cleveland Browns cuz he wanted to play for Jim Brown's old team. I don't listen. In fairness, I don't know most kids coming out of the draft now know the equivalent of that. So, like in in 1999, that would have been like a decade ago. I don't know most most young guys are like ah, oh, uh, you know, ten years ago. I want to be uh, the the Green Bay Packers. I want to make the Packers great again. I, maybe it's just a generational thing, but it's interesting. This game. And kind of sneaky important to the Saints. The Saints are kind of in a similar situation to the Cleveland Browns because the Saints traded their first-round pick to trade up in last year's draft. So the Saints aren't just playing at 5-9 and nine for a spot maybe in the uh, playoffs as they are one game back off the Buccaneers in the NFC South, which tells you what a crap division that is. I think there's a chance that it's a seven and 10 team, which I believe would be the worst winning percentage to ever secure a playoff spot in NFL history. But I think seven and 10 might get it done in the NFC South, but the saints have, you know, I heard Lima and Ken today talking about how, what, what differentiates this year's season from the Browns from most seasons. And it was like where, where, when we knew there wasn't a great chance of making the playoffs, like, Five years ago, if we knew they weren't going to make the playoffs, we'd say, all right, you got to lose because of draft positioning. Well, it doesn't really make sense for the Browns because they don't own their first-round pick. The Saints are in the same boat. Like, the Saints are maybe in... The only saving grace the Saints have is that they can probably get a first-round pick for Sean Payton this offseason. But Andy Dalton isn't it. Jameis Winston sure as hell isn't it. They've got a roster that, honestly, like, Alave's great. I can't remember the other kid. Uh, the, the Trevor Penning is the other kid they drafted. I think he's kind of butt. I, I, I didn't like him as a draft prospect. I don't think he's a left tackle in the NFL. Um, But, like, most of their roster, like Cam Jordan, Michael Thomas, Alvin Kamara, Mark Ingram, I mean, most of this roster, kind of not great. So, getting back to that idea with the Cleveland Browns. I thought it was interesting. If you guys missed the beginning of the show, I don't know what has happened with the energy around the Cleveland Browns. Like I'm not here to tell you that the the playoffs are gonna happen. I, I don't think they are going to happen. It you would take uh we we read off the 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 five of seven five of seven specific things would have to happen, including multiple teams going 0-3 over the final Uh, three weeks of the season, uh, multiple teams would have to go one and two or worse. Like basically you need the football gods to reach down from the heavens and say, all right, Cleveland, you, you shall pass to the NFL playoffs. No, not you, New York jets. No, not you, New England Patriots. No, not you LA chargers. No, not you Tennessee Titans. Like the the sheer amount of things that have to happen uh for the Browns to make the playoffs is mind numbing. I honestly I don't think we should even pay attention to it until the final week of the season. If there's still a path the final week of the season where going into that Brown Steelers game, if it's like you need a loss from two teams, then we can talk about or we, even if it's you need these five teams to lose. Then we can have the conversation. But like right now, I just think the Browns have to focus on doing what they can do, which is what I kind of made this point earlier. What does anybody get out of calling the playoff race over? It's so funny because like it, it felt like an arms race. I know Dusty called it a couple times. I know Lima this morning mentioned he called it three weeks ago. The playoffs were off the board. And by the way, those are the two that I heard that, like, I can recall and I can actually put names on it because I work with those guys and love and respect those guys. But, like, it felt like an arms race. Like, there were people after the Dolphins game. They had uh, no playoffs. They still had, like, a 20% chance of making the playoffs. After the first Ravens loss – sorry, after the Ravens loss, before you beat the Bengals, oh, oh, this this season's over. Like, I don't really get it. I'm not – I – I don't think, and I agree with anybody who says it's a fruitless conversation. It's not a conversation until the Browns continue to take care of their side of the equation, and, quite frankly, more stuff has to happen in front of them. All of those things are fair. But that's just not where my head is. Like, even though this season, the success is based off of did you make the playoffs? It's yes or no. It's binary. Very little wiggle room. And if the answer is no, then yes, in the ultimate sense, it is a failure. But, like, I heard Lima and I heard Dusty and I heard Ken and I heard everybody talk about it. This idea of, well, then the final three games don't mean anything. I couldn't agree less with that. The final three games are the difference between players continuing to play for Kevin Stefanski and not continuing to play for Kevin Stefanski. The final three games are are the difference between trying to reclaim a winning culture and not. The final three games, and listen, this is really important. It doesn't matter if the Browns do make the playoffs for this next thing. Them playing as if they're playing to make the playoffs, it absolutely matters to trying to develop guys to the final whistle at the end of the regular season. I think we saw this. With, and listen, I don't know that any of these guys were great players. Because we get like Ibrahim Campbell didn't go off yonder and become a great NFL player. Sean Coleman, the former third round pick tackle, he never became a great player outside of Cleveland. Roderick Johnson never made us regret cutting Roderick Johnson. But I do wonder if those players that the Browns drafted, all those picks that it felt like they were wasted, right? I do wonder if they had gone to winning cultures instead of being drafted to the Browns, I wonder if their NFL tales would be different. Like a guy like Carl Nassib. Carl Nassib was a dude that was like a third-round pick that was forced onto the field as a rookie that was a nice player, but he was never a great player. And then he went to Tampa Bay and became a really good third-edge rusher in the NFL. Emmanuel Agba was another guy that like here... The knock on him, well, he didn't get to the quarterback enough. Went to Kansas City, and in fairness, he, one year in Kansas City didn't really work out that well. But he ended up with Miami. He's one of the best five techniques in the NFL now. So, to me, while the greater, the hierarchy, the overarching question of did you make the playoffs, yes or no, and based off that, the, the 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 highest art the the highest arcing question arching whatever you want to say i don't even know how to say it uh is it a success or not that's a fair thing to say but to then turn around and say well the final three games don't matter no matter how small or minute it is they still have a chance to 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 be in the playoffs and i think mentally i think that actually does help them And I think the the longer they can stay in the the playoff hunt, and I'm using that in quotations, I think the better for developing some of these young guys. Joe Woods, I don't think there should be anything that saves that guy's job. I think Joe Woods, as a defensive coordinator, he was not great in Denver. I think he was there two years as defensive coordinator. He's not been consistently great. It doesn't take three years to implement a high-level defense. And... It's, it would be one thing if I thought talent was the issue because everybody blames this on defensive tackle or linebacker. That's not the reason they didn't play as one. They didn't play together. There was a lot of finger pointing early in the season. That reflects coaching and leadership to me. But beyond that, the final three games probably matter to Perry on Winfrey entering next year as a starter or entering next year as a rotational piece and his ability to develop beyond that any of the young linebackers, uh, even a guy like Grant Delpit, who's got plenty of playing tape, but maybe hasn't been the most consistent guy, A.J. Green. There's a lot of young talent on this team that can still be developed as long as this team still plays hard down the stretch. And most importantly, you develop a winning culture. That's the number one thing the Browns need more than just talent. Any guys who know how to win and who know how to win when you know what gets tough. There's something I want to get to in college football that uh, the guys in in the uh, the studio they were talking about it just now, and I just, I just I just feel the need to continue to point out the hypocrisy in uh in college football and what's going on with NIL. But I we were just getting into the Browns and what a Mangini finish to the season would mean for the Browns. Would that save the Browns from making changes to this coaching staff if the Browns end up at 9 and 8? I don't think it should. I think Joe Woods is who he is, and I think if Kevin Stefanski doesn't do it, to me, it'll tell me Kevin Stefanski isn't a head coach. And whether it is – let me put it this way. You finish 9 and 8. I think Kevin Stefanski should be guaranteed all of next season. Because to me, that says over the course of uh, 17 games, he was able to right the ship. And that would be the se- two out of three years where he's finished strong with the team. So that is a sign of good coaching. Now, if they were to end up 6-11, and 11, that means they would lose the final three games of this year. All of a sudden, I think he ends up next year, uh, he starts next year on the hot seat. So to people who say, ah, well, the next three games are meaningless, I disagree. There's a lot at stake. The future of the Cleveland Browns program is at stake. But I don't think going nine and eight, I don't think winning the final three games, which would which would mean, by the way, you would end the season six and one in your last seven games. I don't think that changes the fact that the winning formula isn't there yet with the Browns. And I do think, listen, there's some roster tweaks that I think you're going to have to make. And and there might be some roster tweaks we're not a fan of. There might be some more guys that we like that have to be, I, like Kareem Hunt. I think Kareem's probably done here in Cleveland. Um, I, I, I Jason Lloyd has kind of talked a lot about the situation at guard. Do you have to make a decision this offseason between uh, Joel Batonio and Wyatt Teller? I think that's probably a year away. But I think that, okay, there's another difficult decision. But I think the most difficult, those are Andrew Berry decisions influenced by Kevin Stefanski. The Kevin Stefanski decisions are you need to make some changes on the staff. Now, I think some are going to happen. If Brian Callahan, who is the Cincinnati offensive coordinator, he gets a head coaching job, be prepared for Bill Callahan to go be his OC. That feels like a, a no bleep. It would not surprise me if you saw another one of, like a Drew Petsing, uh, who's your quarterback's coach right now. It would not surprise me if you saw a couple of those guys leave, given how the offense had success. But defensively, listen, we're like six weeks removed from people coming up on the sidelines to Jason Lloyd. Uh, this is, by the way, the Jason Lloyd segment, apparently. Um, but coming up to Jason Lloyd and and, and asking when Joe Woods was going to get fired. I don't know Joe Woods is seen as a as a big-ticket item. And here's what's interesting. When we got into this earlier, Dustin said he doesn't think the Browns' defensive coordinator job would be sought after this offseason. I actually disagree. There is always risk when it comes to the Cleveland Browns, but the reality is there are very few defenses right now if you're a, a defensive coordinator with a def- decent resume – that are are going to give you the opportunity to coach Miles Garrett, Denzel Ward, JOK, and the rest of the talent. And there is talent on this defensive side of the ball. 0092. Should a Mangini finish? We'll call it a Mangini flourish because that sounds really sexy. To uh, to save the season, or rather to end the season, would that stop the Browns from making changes? Let's go with AJ. AJ, welcome to the show, buddy.
0: Oh, thank you, thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. You gave me a you gave me a perfect segue for what I wanted to talk about. Well, AJ, um, I'm a yeah.
1: I'm, I'm kind of a professional. I don't know if you've heard that. <laughs> just what you got? I don't know how you did it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean it was it was a uh, sight unseen.
0: <laughs> but Jeremiah Coromoa, uh, Grant Delford, those guys um, in college were studs. All of them were. were Quarterback's worst nightmare. I mean, they were great at um, blitzing, and um, it's just, it just to look at their college careers and then look at them now, it just pale in comparison. And and I, I put it all in Joe Woods, but he doesn't like
1: blitz. He doesn't like the blitz. So I'm and, I'm a little torn on this, Aj. And I thank you for the call. Um, I think the Browns' biggest problem is they're a really fast defense that has not been allowed to play fast this year. That points a lot towards coaching. That points to uh comfort with the scheme. That points to comfort with knowing where you're supposed to be and, and how you're supposed to play. Um and again, some of that might be some of that might be on on the players, but I think a lot of that is coaching. What I would say is kind of at the end there he made he made the point about um it's kind of the state of of where things are going i i don't know listen i think i think this is about 63% on Joe Woods and i think it's about 37% on the players and the 37% some of that's talent and some of that is i don't think they bought into what Joe Woods is selling if that is true even if they finish out the season strong it's tough to come back if, if players didn't uh buy into your message. Larry, welcome to the show. Hello, Larry. Lawrence. Larry had a real chance there because he wanted to blame it on the players. There's another epi- There was another moment of me uh trying to bring on a caller in the right uh in the right context. So from the Browns in a strong finish to what is a pretty weak it's tough to say finish. But what is the smatterings of complaints of college football coaches with regards to NIL? And tomorrow the not only do we have the transfer portal window that opened up, uh, I want to say it was 10 days ago if I'm if I remember correctly. Math is tough, carry the two. But not only do we have that, we've got the uh the early signing period beginning tomorrow. And that's going to run through, I think that's a three-day window. And what it has brought up is what is now the uh, semi-regular chorus of college football coaches bitching about NIL. And and let me just tell you right now, college coaches don't dislike NIL because players are making money. That's not it. College coaches don't like NIL because it's a threat to the way they've done things their entire career. And succeeding in this new wild, wild west of players getting literally just bought and paid for on the open market, succeeding in that environment is going to require change. It's going to require you changing your program. It's going to require you changing the way you coach. It's going to require uh, nearly round-the-clock recruitment of your own players. And they don't want it. But but be honest. I, I just wish all these guys, and there are a lot of guys, listen, I think there's a plenty amount of frauds in college football. I also think there are some good people in college football. The problem is the second I hear college coaches complain and moan about NIL and the free market system we have here, which, by the way, the coaches benefit from every single year. College coaches at any point. Scott Satterfield was probably a year away, and I like Scott. I got to know him a little bit when he was at App State. He was about a year away from being fired by Louisville because early in his tenure there, he had ruffled feathers and people just stopped supporting that program from a booster perspective. He was on track to being fired within the next 24 months. He left to Cincinnati for safer ground and for arguably a better job. Nobody said, man, I can't believe that guy would do that. It's just become this foregone conclusion that coaches can do whatever the hell they want, but when players have power, oh no, it's bad. Which brings me to Pat Narduzzi. And I think Pat Narduzzi, from all I've heard, is one of the good ones. Uh, he's Pitt's head coach. He has stabilized a Pitt program that, that honestly has never reached back the heights of Johnny Majors a few years ago, or a few years ago, 30 years ago. And he was on ninety-three seven the fan in Pittsburgh today. And he got into the alleged recruitment of UNC quarterback Drake May, who, by the way, not currently in the transfer portal. Mac Brown came out this week and said Drake May is Star Quarterback. They were trying to poach him million dollar offers to go to another school. I heard five million.
2: I heard five million. <sighs> really? I heard Two schools, five million. I know the schools. I can't tell you, but I know the schools, too.
1: Pat, what's going on with that, the transfer portal? And now now players don't even have to be in the transfer portal for schools, I guess, to contact them and try to get
2: them. Yeah, there's, it's called tampering, and and uh, it's really bad, guys. Uh, it's You know, the NCAA's got us all in a bad spot right now, and, and uh, I think it's only going to get uglier um, because there are no rules on the road. Um, you know, I'm hearing all kinds of things. I'm hearing guys are getting paid even before they enter. You know, they're getting bonuses for just signing tomorrow. Um, kids are being paid in high school now, a certain amount of money, and then when you get there, they would give you this money. You know, high school players. It's, um, it's bad, um, and uh, you know, it's not something that's you know that I'm real proud as a you know a member of the American Football Coaches Association uh, of being part of. Um, but it's uh, it's a world we're living in. Uh, I'm going to try to just, you know, keep our guys in line and, and un- make sure they understand that they're coming for an education and that that's a priority, and I want them to get coached hard. Um, and we want to take care of their name, image, and likeness the right way and do, it, do things the right way.
1: I don't know if you heard that, but that was the sound of Pat Narduzzi going full uh, Plexico Burris with his program, shooting himself in the leg. Why do these players think that this is what? Why do they think they are the white knights here to save college football? Does Pat Narduzzi think that that recruits aren't going to hear this or guys in his roster aren't going to hear this and say one screw you? The, the, the college coach is not understanding. They're not understand how how it sure sounds like they are talking down to both fans of uh, sports fans and to the athletes. If players are being um, allowed paid money, he, he used the, it's only going to get uglier. For whom? Is it? Is it ugly for Drake May to have two schools reach out to you and say, um, by the way, when he says schools, what he really means is boosters or people who support schools. Schools cannot directly reach out. You know, North Carolina's president can't reach out and be like, Drake, I'd really love it if you came here and played football, which, by the way, he already plays in North Carolina. Duke president can't do that. So it's really boosters. And listen, boosters are shady as hell. All right, go to one Ohio State tailgate and go just rub elbows with some boosters and tell me you feel really good about yourself. You can't do it. They're shady, they're rich, they're cloaked in enormous wealth and enormous power. But this this whole doomsday bull crap. He called it tampering. Does he know that it's not tampering? Tampering is a legal term used when somebody is under contract with one party and that person is then tampered with by another organization, a competing organization. There's no contract. A scholarship is not a contract. And that's where Pat Narduzzi and a lot of college coaches wanted to go. Why? It's not for the betterment of the student-athlete. It's not so that these guys can really learn what college athletics is about. No, no, no. It's so they can have more control over the process. To which I say, Pat, maybe it's time to go back to being a really good offensive line coach. Maybe it's time to go back and coach the defensive backs. Get with it or die. Adapt or die. That's college football right now. I want to. I, I have more on this because this is ridiculous. I just, when you hear that... Two schools are offering a quarterback currently under scholarship for for North Carolina, $5 million to transfer. Do you have an issue with that?
0: Baseball is back, and so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices, anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand.